Indeed, dear friends, there is a higher throne. One of the beautiful parts about this news is a line in the third verse of the song that says, and there we'll find our home, our life before the throne. Well, friends, this throne that exists, that is higher than anything else, than any other authority, than any other power, than any other um, edifice, oh, friends, that higher throne will one day be our home. Praise be to that, to God for that, and I look forward to that day, but until that day comes, we are still here. And until that day comes, we have a message to proclaim. And until that day comes, the message that we want to proclaim is that God will triumph no matter what we experience here on earth. God will triumph no matter what we experience here on earth. If you uh, are visiting with us this morning, we are working our way through the uh, book of Isaiah, and I encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 24. We'll be reading from verse 1 to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 12. Uh, you may find this passage on page number 585. For the last uh, few weeks, we have gone fairly quickly through a number of chapters, chapter 13 through 23, we have covered in three sermons. Uh, there was a lot of material to cover um, through uh, the last few weeks. Today, as we are working our way through the book of Isaiah, we're looking at two chapters that sort of bring to an end uh, the segment um, from chapter 12 to 27. We'll look today at, at the first half of the ending of this section, and next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the last two chapters of the second major part of the book of Isaiah. Today we are looking at Isaiah chapter 25, I'm sorry, 24 and 25. Here's the word of the Lord for us. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants, and it shall be as with a people, so with a priest, as with a slave, so with a master. As with a maid, so with her mistress. As with a buyer, so with a seller. As with a lender, so with a borrower. As with a creditor, so with a debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statues, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise, noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. 
There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. For the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will fortify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like a heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all their faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be on that day. It will be said on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts and souls. Join me in prayer. Father, you are a majestic God who will triumph. As we hear this news today in our hearing, well, Lord, help us to, to grasp a picture of what your triumph will include. What, would, what will it involve? Help us, O oh Lord, to listen well. Help us to listen with attentive hearts. Father, we pray that if there's anyone among us who is still far away from you, that you would draw his heart to respond to you for the glory of your name. We pray that in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, for the past 10 chapters in the book of Isaiah, we have been working through a season or a, a, a part of this book that I gave you some warnings about several weeks ago. I gave you some warnings that it will feel bumpy, uh, that it will feel, feel hard. Uh, it will feel, feel hard in, in what we have heard about the oracles of judgment, the oracles of warning that God has given these nations um, for the past ten chapters. And in, these, in the last ten chapters, these oracles were specific to particular nations, and even though we may not feel like we are those nations, the, the principles of what God has revealed about himself, about those nations, uh, apply to us as well uh, today. The passage we're dealing with today, however, brings the oracles of judgment that were initially um, brought to specific nations for the past 10 chapters. And in chapter 24, it's as if we have a major conclusion and God's oracle of judgment is not just over specific nations during the time of Isaiah. God now has a word of judgment against the entire earth. So that what we heard about the nations actually affects us as well, even today. But God's word of judgment, God's word of warning doesn't stop there. And this has been a pattern we have seen in the book of Isaiah over and over again. God's warning of judgment 
is not the last word God gives his people. And we will see that again today. So that if chapter 24 is a message of warning and judgment, chapter 25 will be a message of comfort. Actually, we will see chapter 25 is a chapter in which the author Isaiah explodes in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. But before we get there, let's begin with chapter 24. The overall theme of both of these chapters together is that God will triumph. God will triumph. Friends, this message is not merely an optimistic message. Oh, hey, we will win. And then you realize uh, we may not win. Uh, As football season begins, uh, and it began last night, uh, I'm sure sports fans are going to be very optimistic about what happens with your favorite football team. Friends, this, this kind of optimism that we often have in sports is unlike the optimism and the surety of the message we're declaring today about God will triumph. And we'll see in the passage some reasons why we can have confidence that this is not just a pie-in-the-sky optimism. This is a surety, and we will see that through our passage. God will triumph. What does that mean? How will God bring about his triumph? What will his triumph involve? We'll look at two major parts, what his triumph will involve. The first part is in chapter 24, and God will triumph by bringing emptiness and desolation. God will triumph by bringing emptiness and desolation. Look at verse 1 in chapter 24. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. This statement is significant enough that it is repeated again in verse 3. The earth shall be utterly emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken. Friends, remember at the very beginning of the Bible how God created the earth? He created the heavens and the earth by speaking. Let there be. And there was. There was light. There was sun and uh, the stars. and There was the trees, the vegetation, the animals. God merely had to speak this world into existence and he came into existence. But now we are told that by the same word, the Lord will also make the earth empty and desolate. This news is terrifying. This news is bad news. Why would the Lord decree this against the earth? Why would the Lord decree that that he will empty the earth? The answer is in the rest of this chapter. Particularly in verses 4 through 6, we see what is going on on the earth that calls God to bring about such a decree of emptying and desolating the entire earth. Look at verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. It's as if Isaiah describes the earth as a person. It's a personification of the earth. Uh, he's, he's, it's like a person who has feelings. Things are not the way they should be. The earth is mourning. Something is wrong with the earth. The earth is withering. In verse 5, we are told what is wrong with the earth. Here's what's wrong with the earth. The earth is defiled under its inhabitants. This is why the earth mourns. This is why the earth withers. This is why God is planning to empty the earth. 
because the earth is defiled under its inhabitants. Now, what does it mean to be defiled? To be defiled means to be stained. It means to be polluted. But we're not talking about chemical pollution here. We're not talking about environmental pollution. The pollution that the earth is polluted with is described in verse 5. Why is the earth defiled? What causes the earth to be defiled? Look again at verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Aha! We finally have found the culprit. We had to read a few verses to get down to the real problem. Why are things the way they are? The reason why the earth is defiled, stained, corrupted, is because humanity has rebelled against God. And I wonder if you recognize or realize that our rebellion against God and against His ways affects not only us, but also the earth. Sin pollutes. Sin defiles. Sin stains. And it stains not only you and me, it stains everything around us. Even the earth is affected by our sin. Verse 6 gives us a conclusion to the sin of the people of the earth. So what? There's a therefore in verse 6. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Friends, sin is not merely a private issue. It affects everything. The sin of Adam and Eve in the garden was not just a matter between them and the Lord. Sin is never just a matter between you and the Lord. The disobedience of Adam and Eve against God's word, against their creator, brought a curse upon the earth. And it brought corruption to the nature of all humanity. Oh friends, sin is not something that we should treat lightly. We may think that what we do with our lives is a personal issue. We may think that it's none, no one's business how we live our lives. But our sin has universal effects upon the entire creation. In verses 7 through 13, we see images of what the curse brings upon the earth. Uh, notice some of, some of the effects of this curse. And, and the effects are portrayed in images. In verse 7, we see the image of a vine and a, and a wine. Both the wine and the vine are personified as mourning and languishing. Just as earlier, the entire earth was personified as, as mourning and withering. In verse 8, the singing and the joy is silenced. In verse 9, even those who drink are no longer able to sing or to enjoy their drinking. Now think about that. It's not so much that it says don't drink. It's, so, it's more that you can drink all you want. You'll stop enjoying it. It will no longer satisfy. In other words, the, the, these activities 
and sources of joy on earth will no longer satisfy. In verse 10, we, we see a, a change of picture. Uh, we see a picture of a broken city. It's brokenness. It's seen in, in its social interactions. The picture of houses that are shut so no one can enter. People are no longer talking with one another. There's no more community. In verse 11, people become desperate for their lack of joy. It says, there's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Friends, one of the signs of the curse that is on the earth is that the joy people once had goes out. It doesn't last. It will no longer satisfy. The gladness the earth once had will come to an end. This is one of the effects of the curse that is upon the earth. In verse 12, the city that used to be a place for partying is now left desolate and unprotected. In verse 13, the picture of a city that has been abandoned and ruined becomes a mini description of what will take place not just in one city, but in the midst of the earth among the nations. Now, friends, we have seen recently images of what desolation looks like by merely a hurricane hitting certain places in our nation. And we have seen what it looks like for cities to be ruined, for streets, for neighborhoods to be ruined. This is a kind of picture that we get in this text. A city that is ruined, desolate, no more life in it, no more joy in it. People will be scrambling to find joy and satisfaction to no avail. And Isaiah portrays this curse on the earth by giving this imagery of a desolate city. Oh, friends, if you find yourself lured by the things of this earth, whether you find drawn, whether you find your heart drawn to, uh, to, to build up and look for prestige, for money, for admiration, for relationships, for influence, whatever it is, remember that we live in a world that is under the curse of sin, and that means that any joy you might seek to experience or have even now will come to an end. It will not be able to satisfy. Our sin has defiled the earth, and the curse of sin devours the earth, and therefore its inhabitants suffer under their guilt. Friends, sin not only defiles the earth and devours the earth, sin leaves the inhabitants of the earth guilty under their own guilt. No wonder that God decrees to empty the earth. But what's surprising in this, in this chapter about, about God decreeing the emptying and the making desolation of the earth, what's surprising is a reaction from various corners of the earth that we see in verse 14 through 16. Now you would expect, you'd expect to hear continued cries of woes, not only at what's going on upon the earth, but at the news that there's more of that going on. But surprisingly, in verses 14 through 16, the prophet Isaiah hears voices of singing. And the singing is not lament. It's a singing for joy. 
Look at verses 14 through 16. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. What an unexpected reaction to the news that God will empty the earth and make it desolate. In an earth that has been deprived of joy, Isaiah hears voices. And they're not just any kind of joy. It is not the joy caused by the wine. It's the joy caused by people singing praises to the righteous one. Notice, however, that what, what this singing focuses on. The singing is focusing not on the desolation of the earth. The singing is focusing on the majesty of the Lord, on the glory of his name. Friends, this response of praise, at this point we don't know who's singing it because the author is not telling us who's singing this, this song of praise. This response of praise challenges us to consider that God's decree to empty out the defiled earth is an outworking of his majesty. It's not an outworking of his anger, uncontrolled anger. It's an outworking of his majesty. It also challenges us to redirect our attention from the earth with its brokenness to the Lord with his majesty. God is able to eradicate everything that is defiled. Everything. The defilement of the entire earth is not too big of a project for God to clean up. It's not like FEMA being now divided on two fronts trying to clean up so much damage. One damage in Texas was, a lo- was hard enough for FEMA to handle. Now they got two fronts to deal with. Well, imagine if that devastation is happening all over the earth. Who would have the resources to clean it up? The news we get here is that God will clean it up. God will clean up all the mess. And he will clean it up. The way he cleans up the defiled earth will not be by merely applying a fresh coat of paint over the rottenness of the whole earth. Oh, friends, no. Here's how God will will clean up. He will tear everything apart. He'll bring everything back to the very basics. Everything will be desolate. Why? Because everything has been defiled. Everything has been been corrupted by the defilement. So he, he pulls everything apart so that his restoration would be thorough. This is why we see the entire earth becoming empty and desolate. And this is why... There's voices of praises shouting forward from the east and the west because God's work of restoration will be thorough. Friends, the singing of joy that Isaiah hears is a singing of those who rejoice that God's majesty and glory and righteousness is far greater than the defilement of the entire earth. God can handle this project. But not everyone in this chapter rejoices. If we keep reading verse 16, Isaiah says, I waste away. I waste away. Twice. And then he says, woe is me. 
He said that before in chapter 6 of Isaiah, when he had the vision of God. Now when he recognizes that he is, he's part of the effect of this curse, the effects of this curse are upon him as well. In verses 6, 17 through 18, we, we are told that no one will escape this experience. No one. The one who would try to experience will be caught. In verses 21 and 23, we are told that God would not only deal with the earth when he cleans the defilement of the earth, but God will deal with the host of heaven. In other words, the rebellious angels, not even they will escape this punishment that God will bring. The kings of the earth will not be able to escape, even in their power, even in their place of authority. No one will be too high for the Lord not to bring down. In verse 23, even the moon and the sun will be confounded and ashamed. Now, why will, it, why will the moon and the sun be confounded and ashamed? Look at verse 23. The moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Oh, friends, it's because God reigns that the earth will be emptied out. It's because God reigns that even the moon and the sun will be turned to shame. It's because God reigns that he will show his elders and his leaders and his, the people, the leaders of his people, his glory. Friend, I wonder if you live any differently in light of the reality that God reigns. If the moon and the sun, who have not sinned, but are affected by our sin, if the moon and the sun are confounded and affected by the reality that the Lord reigns, how much more should we sinners who brought this whole world into its mess? Friends, the earth will be emptied out, but the glory of the Lord will not be emptied out. The earth will be made a desolation, but the glory of the Lord will be displayed before his people. The people of God will see his glory. The judgment of God against the earth does not diminish God's glory. So God will triumph First and foremost, by bringing emptiness and desolation upon a defiled earth. That's point number one. God will not let our rebellion and corruption go on forever. He will bring it to the end because God is a good God. Because God is a majestic God. But the second way we see God triumph is by bringing deliverance to his people. The second way we see God triumph that by bringing deliverance to his people. As we move on to chapter 25, notice how the tone changes again. Isaiah's lament and woe now turns to praise and exaltation. Look at verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Friends, the only ones who can respond to the Lord with such praise and exaltation, even after chapter 24, are those who can say about the Lord, you are my God. Can you say that about the Lord this morning? Friends, making the Lord to be your God is the most important reality that we can experience. 
And out of that reality comes an attitude and life of genuine praise to God, even while we keep living in Isaiah 24. As we keep reading chapter 25, we see why Isaiah praises God. In verse 1, Isaiah declares that God was faithful to carry out wonderful things that God had planned long ago. In in verse 2, Isaiah praises God for bringing down the opponents. He's ruining or has ruined the fortified cities. I don't know. It's possible that this ruining of a fortified city might refer to Jericho. Perhaps. We don't know. In verse 3, Isaiah praises God because the nations will turn to God to praise Him. In other words, Isaiah sees a time when not only he and, and the people of Israel will praise the Lord, but the nations, the peoples from the nations will come and praise the Lord. In verse 4, Isaiah praises God for bringing a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress. Oh, listen to this one. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Friends, in the context in which Isaiah was, he needed to rely on all these characteristics of God. The people of Israel needed to rely on all these characteristics of God, but Isaiah does something sweet here. He turns all these characteristics into praise and incorporates them in his own prayer life. And and his prayer life is not filled with petitions. His prayer life is first and foremost filled with praise. Friends, these are themes that God has revealed in the previous 10 chapters in Isaiah. God is a refuge for His people. So His people ought to place their trust and hope in the Lord and rely on Him. One day, the the nations will join the people of God. And they will put their trust in the Lord. We've seen that already in previous chapters. And Isaiah just stands before the Lord and says, I'm going to praise you because these truths are real. These characteristics are real about God. Friends, the people of God are characterized by this attitude of praise towards God even while they live in Isaiah 24. Yes, the earth is not the way it should be. Yes, you may look at at things around you, perhaps in your family, perhaps in, in relationships, perhaps at your workplace, and you realize things are not the way they should be. Some of us feel the effects of the curse on the earth more than others. Yet in the midst of that, God's people have a song of praise towards God. We can only have that. We can only have that song. We can only have that attitude when we turn our focus from this earth and meditate on the faithfulness of God and His majestic power. But there's something else that this chapter gives us to to give us reasons to praise God, to give us reasons to have attitudes of exaltation towards the Lord. Look at a few things that this chapter tells us that God will do for His people. Notice how God's deliverance of His people is described in the rest of this chapter. God is preparing a great banquet. Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. 
Now, what do you do with this picture? Well, here's what we should do with this picture. We should read it in contrast to the picture we had in chapter 24. Remember in chapter 24, God silenced the joy of a rebellious earth? But that doesn't mean that God is against joy, my friends. Just because God may not sanction and agree with the way we party doesn't mean that God doesn't like partying. It's just that he does it on his way with the provisions he makes. Friends, God is a God ready to prepare and to be a a lavish host putting on a luxurious banquet for his people. And the best way we can appreciate this banquet is if we read it in contrast with all the desolation of the party that went bad in chapter 24. God is providing a banquet full of luxurious drinks and foods. Oh, friends, the desolation of the earth does not prevent God from from providing a luxurious banquet for his people. The desolation of the earth doesn't keep God away or doesn't prevent God from putting forth a luxurious banquet for his people. And notice who's going to be invited to this banquet? It's not going to be just the Israelites. It says all the peoples from all the nations of the earth are invited to this banquet. But if they want to enjoy this divine hosted party, they must come to the place that God prepares on this mountain. It's not just on any mountain. It's not just on any place they, they, or any way they want to come to the Lord. They must come to the Lord to the place and through the means by which he prepares for this banquet. Well, friends, the invitation we see here is an invitation to turn away from sin and from the rebellion against God. Sin and rebellion will devour us of the ability to enjoy this creation. Sin and rebellion will bring upon the earth the great desolation that God promised. But God in his mercy is preparing a feast for all those who would turn to him in repentance and faith. And God himself will be the host of this feast. Later in the book of Isaiah, particularly in chapter 55, we see God's invitation to repentance presented in, through this language of calling people to come and eat free food. God says in Isaiah 55, this way, Come, everyone who, is thir- who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Friends, the food that God is providing and preparing and promising is not whole foods. It's not organic stuff. It's not the healthy stuff that you necessarily can buy. It's a food that will heal your soul. It's a food that will give life to your soul. Oh, friends, this is a picture of what it means to turn to the Lord. God wants to nourish us with a food that is eternal, that will sustain our souls. Oh, friend, God invites the people of the earth to turn to Him because He alone can satisfy the hunger of our souls. But that turning means that we 
are called to give up seeking to satisfy our souls by what we can provide for ourselves. It means going to no other provider but to the Lord. Come to the Lord for that banquet. Don't don't try to, to make two parties in the same day. Choose one banquet. You're either going to come to the Lord on his terms or you're going to keep parting your own way. The way of salvation is given freely, but it's given exclusively. It calls us to renounce all other means by which we would satisfy ourselves and seek that satisfaction in the Lord. Notice another characteristic of what God will do for his people when he will bring deliverance and why we can praise the Lord. Not only will God provide and put up a banquet for us, but God will take away the greatest effect of the curse, death itself. Look at verse 7. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is it that God will swallow up? Death. Death. In Romans 6, God said, For the wages of sin is death. But now we are told that God would swallow up death forever. This means that the banquet to which God invites us will never be interrupted by death. It's a banquet that's going to be eternal. There's going to be no end to that party. Friend, this is why the resurrection of Jesus is such a big deal for Christianity. By the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, God gives us proof that he has power to overcome death. To swallow up death. The resurrection of Jesus proves us that this promise that God will swallow up death is not just pie in the sky. It's a real token. It's a real proof that what God is able to do in one person, He is able to do on all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for their salvation. Not only will God swallow up death forever, but look at what else God promises to do in verse 8. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will take away. He will take away from all the earth. No, friends, God here is presented as one who is compassionate, coming to his people. Dealing not only with death, but with the effects of it. The tears, the tears of suffering, God will take away. Notice what God's people will say in that day. In verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, through the past 10 chapters of Isaiah, God challenged his people to wait on the Lord, to rely on him, not on themselves. And now those who have waited on the Lord and on his salvation They are the one who are rejoicing. Their waiting on the Lord has proven to be true. They are seeing that everything that God has promised, He has done for them. Their waiting did not disappoint them. Friends, let's apply this to ourselves. How many of us would rather say to the Lord, Lord, bring this redemption now. Make it fully manifested right now. Bring the desolation to an end quickly. But friends, that's not the message verse 9 has for us. The message verse 9 has for us is that we are still in the camp of the people who are waiting. 
we have not yet arrived at the time when these people will say, we have waited. For us, we are still waiting. For us, God has given us reasons to believe that he is trustworthy, that we can wait on him. But friends, we are in the season that's called still waiting. Perhaps some of you are tired of the waiting. Perhaps some of you feel like you have no more energy to wait. Perhaps some of you feel like the desolation is too hard. Friends, keep waiting. It will be worth it. The Lord will not disappoint you. The length of waiting will not disappoint you. This, people of, this picture of people rejoicing in having waited for God, they're rejoicing that they have waited. They're rejoicing that they have waited until the end. Friends, let that be an encouragement to all of us who are still in this waiting season. If you're wondering whether or not it's worth waiting, if you're wondering whether or not it's worth putting all your eggs in this basket called God and putting your hope, your aspirations, your desires in no other basket but this one called the Lord. Oh, friends, the Lord will give you a song of praise. The Lord is giving us reasons to believe it's totally worth it. Those who have arrived at the end of their waiting are cheering for us, telling us it's worth it. Keep waiting. In these two chapters, we have seen a God who will triumph. His triumph is seen by two major parts. God's triumph is seen in his inability, in his, in, in his ability to empty the earth and make it a desolation. But all of that is given to help us see that the culprit of it all is not God. It's us, humanity. We and our sin caused all this to bring about, to come about. But God's triumph is seen in also in his ability to bring about deliverance to his people. God delivers us from the effects of the curse that has come upon the earth. God is like a secure shelter to whom we can run for safety. God is like a lavish host inviting us to a luxurious banquet when the whole world is devastated in famine and desperate for joy. God is like a, an invincible warrior defeating our greatest enemy, death itself. God is a compassionate God, wiping away all tears and taking away all the reproach. This is how God shows us. This is what God shows us that his deliverance will involve. May we turn to God. May we wait on him to bring us deliverance. He will triumph, but the full experience of that triumph for us is still in the future. May we wait on him, and until we wait on him, as we wait on him, may we glory in him. May we find all our glory in him, so that as we continue to live in Isaiah 24, we may live with the attitude of Isaiah 25. May we glory in God alone. Let's pray. Father, this world is not the way you have intended it to be. And we see that around us in so many ways. But Father, would you give us the confidence and the hearts 
and the attitudes that we have seen in, in chapter 25, attitudes of praise, exaltation, confidence, and, and strength to wait on you. So that as we see the desolation around us in various ways, we may be a people who respond to these circumstances in a way that, that the world has no category for explaining. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are full of praise and exaltation and full of the strength to wait on you. May you be praised through us. In the name of Christ.